Father, we're longing to hear Your voice. That's a miracle that only can take place through the power of the Holy Spirit. I pray that You would touch our hearts, that You'd open our minds, that we would receive the Word in a way that we would not just be hearers, but we would be doers as we look and look and look to Jesus. Father, I pray that each of us would walk away having known that we heard your voice and knowing the plans that you have for our life. In the name of Jesus, I pray. Amen. It was a cold, wintry day in Paso Robles. They were out behind 805 in the riverbed. I don't know if you've ever gone hiking in the riverbed before. But as they went through the riverbed, they were on a mission. They were there to help people that were in the riverbed who were going through the challenges of living outdoors in the cold. This was the Hope and Faith Outreach Ministry. And Adam Robles was one of those who came to a tent. And at this tent, they awakened the occupants of this tent. And one was a a younger woman. She came out and she was standing by the tent and she was kind of cold, it was obvious, and they were giving her some food, they were giving her some things that she needed, and then Adam noticed something. In this cold, wintry day, living in the riverbed, she had no shoes. And you imagine what it would be like to live a life that is already so difficult And to live in the riverbed without shoes. Well, Adam Robles, this is him right here, a new friend of mine. Uh, I got to meet him here a month or so back at a pancake breakfast uh, on a Sabbath. He looked at that woman, and he looked at her feet. He looked at his feet, and he said, what size shoe do you wear? And it turned out that it was the same size shoe that Adam was wearing. He said, here are my shoes. And he began to take off my sh- his shoes. He handed them to Caitlin. And Caitlin took those shoes and she put them on. And Adam walked off barefoot. What kind of a difference do you think that, that something small like that could make in the life of somebody like Caitlin? I mean, we look at situations like this and we think, well, they're hopeless. They're helpless. I mean, they're so far gone. They're, they're addicted to drugs. They've got nothing. There's no hope for them. But Adam looked at her and said, if I just give her my shoes, does really helping somebody like that, does it make a difference in somebody's life? And what does this have to do with Daniel? Well, you remember the advice that Daniel gave to King Nebuchadnezzar in Daniel chapter 4. The only counsel that Daniel gave to any king that we have on record in Scripture. Do you remember what that counsel was? Break off your sins by doing righteousness and show mercy to the poor. (laughs) This is the type of advice that Daniel gave to Nebuchadnezzar. So let's go back to Daniel chapter 8. And this is a a crucial chapter for the Seventh-day Adventist church. If you're not familiar with the Seventh-day Adventist teachings, Daniel is is of vital importance to us, and specifically this verse. We looked at it, what was that, three weeks ago? We looked at this verse, and we're going to, again, unpack this in in a way that I hope is eye-opening for you as it was for me. Daniel 8 verse 14 says, And he said to me, For 2,300 days, then the sanctuary will be cleansed. You remember we looked at the context of Daniel chapter 8 and we saw that there's a ram and a goat that represent the Medes and the Persians, that represents Greece, and then the little horn that comes out of that. But we saw that these are sacrificial animals and these sacrificial animals were only used on one day. Do you remember what day they were used? Where just the two of them are used as sacrifices for people. Do you remember what day that was? The Day of Atonement. And we began to look at the Day of Atonement and we saw this service where All through the year, sin was being brought to the very veil before the most holy place where God's presence was. 
And we saw that it was only one day of the year that the high priest, which by the way, he's bearing the names of the children of Israel, the 12 tribes on his chest. He goes all the way into the sanctuary. And then we saw how he's sprinkling blood as he's coming out. And that blood was not, it, there was no sacri- uh, a confession of sin over it. He's, it's a cleansing process. And he brings that out and then he confesses the sins of Israel on Azazel and that goat is sent out into the wilderness. And we saw this picture of how we've misunderstood the character of what God is like. We've not understood that God is love. This is the original lie by Satan is a misrepresentation of the character of God and, and there's a need for the cleansing of the sanctuary. So that's a quick summary of what we went through last time. And we ended with Jesus describing this in John chapter 16 when he says, I speak to you in figurative language, kind of like the sanctuary service, but someday I'll speak to you more clearly. And when you pray to the Father, don't think that I have to ask him for you. For the Father himself, the one that's there that you don't understand what he's like, he himself loves you. Is that good news to you? The Father himself, he loves you. He's on your side. He's doing everything possible to bring you back to unity with him. But we saw that there's an issue there. There's sin in our hearts, and that has to be dealt with. right? But let's look at the context here as Daniel doesn't understand what's going on here, and we see a conversation taking place between two heavenly beings. And one of them is Gabriel, and he's told to make known to Daniel the meaning and interpretation of what this 2300 days is all about. And notice what he says, understand, son of man, notice this is talking about another son of man, this isn't talking about Jesus himself, this is talking about a human being, Daniel, that the vision refers to the wind time of the end. So this cleansing of the sanctuary, when does it take place? At the end. You know what's fascinating? It used to be that as as Adventists, we're looking forward to the second coming, but lately every person I talk to, no matter what church they they go to, uh, a lot of pastors at pastor's breakfasts from from churches all around the area, they're like, you know what? Uh, Jesus has to be coming soon. (laughs) That's the thing I keep hearing from people, right? Uh, verse 19, though, it goes on, and he's making known this interpretation. And he says to Daniel, Behold, I will make known to you what shall be at the latter end of the indignation, for it refers to the appointed time of the end. This is a message for people who are living at the end of time. At the end, Daniel doesn't really understand and grasp what's going on. But you and I need to understand this. Is that clear today? This is important for you and I to understand. So, so what's our part in this whole picture? What is, what is God calling us to on the antitypical day of atonement as we consider the cleansing of the sanctuary taking place? Then the sanctuary shall be cleansed. So we're going to look at something that God's people were instructed to do, and it's the main thing that they're instructed to do in Leviticus chapter 16 and each time that we talk about the day of atonement. Leviticus 16, verse 30 says, For on that day the priest shall make atonement for you to cleanse you. Not just cleanse the sanctuary, but who else is being cleansed? The people. We need cleansing from the sin that's in our life. To cleanse you that you may be clean from all your sins before the Lord. Now notice, on either side of this idea of the cleansing of the sanctuary and of ourselves, either side of it, notice what is emphasized. We'll go back a verse and look at verse 29. This shall be a statute for you forever. In the seventh month, on the tenth day of the month, that's the day of atonement, you shall, what's that word? Afflict your souls and do no work at all. The no work at all reminds us this is a, a Sabbath uh, feast day. Uh, that Jesus is the one that does all the cleansing work. We saw that in our last focus on the, the Day of Atonement. Jesus is the one who does it. So they were commanded not to work on this day. Don't provide for yourself on this day. But this key phrase, you shall afflict your souls. Another uh, translation of that would be, you shall humble your souls. This is emphasized again, uh, I guess I didn't put it up there, in verse 31. It's again repeated. In fact, when you look at the Day of Atonement, this is repeated time and time again. Leviticus 16, 29 and 31, in the context of the Day of Atonement, it says, you shall afflict your soul, or, or you shall humble your soul. Leviticus 23, verse 27, 29, and 32. Again, tell us the importance of humbling our souls, 
of afflicting our souls. By the way, I love the sound of babies. I just, I sincerely love the sound of babies. And I hope that those of you who haven't had kids understand that having babies is a wonderful thing. And we need to throw our arms open wide for every person that has a baby. Just side note, right? Just like we have the baby dedication today. All right, Leviticus 23, 27, 29, and 32, talking about the Day of Atonement, it emphasizes again and again that we need to humble our souls. And it even says if we don't do this, if we don't afflict our souls, then we will be cut off from the people of Israel. Just like, just like the uh, Azazel was sent out into the wilderness, if you didn't humble your soul, then you were sent out into the wilderness on this day. Numbers 29 verse 7, this, this phrase is used again to afflict your soul. Now it's also used two other times that weren't in the context of the Day of Atonement. It's used in Numbers 30, verse 13. If a wife makes an oath that afflicts her soul, her husband can get her out of it. Kind of a good deal. Uh, And David, he fasted and afflicted his soul for his enemies, he says in the Psalms. So only twice do we find it that's not a, a direct tie that we can say this is about the Day of Atonement. But then it comes up again three more times in Isaiah chapter 58, verses 3, 5, and 10. Afflict your soul. Now notice, this this idea of afflicting your soul is is used about 12 times in the Hebrew Bible. And it's used nine times referring to the Day of Atonement and two times referring to other occasions. And three out of 12 of those, how many times would, what what percentage would that be? One fourth. 25% of the time is used in Isaiah chapter 58. And it's fascinating because when you look at Isaiah chapter 58, it has the markings of the Day of Atonement all over it. Let's go to Isaiah chapter 58. You're welcome to follow along in your Bible or on the screen. Isaiah 58 verse 1 says, Cry aloud, spare not, lift up your voice like a, what's the word? Trumpet. That word is shofar in the Hebrew. Now the shofar was used, the Feast of Trumpets that led up to the Day of Atonement. The only day, uh, uh, feast, liturgical day that that had both the shofar and also fasting was the Day of Atonement. The other major feast besides the, the Feast of Trumpets that led up to the Day of Atonement didn't have the shofar blown at it. At least we're not told that in Scripture. And the house of Jacob, their sins. Notice, who is God addressing here? Who does God want to hear about their sins? The house of Jacob. And what else does he call them? My people. Isn't that beautiful? <laughs> he says, these are my people. <laughs> these, are, these are my own. And so this isn't some, I'm coming down to, to, to pour some, some wrath on you. It's, it's a desperate plea for his own people to realize what their sin looks like. And then it goes on to say, yet they seek me daily. I hope that daily you're taking time to seek God, that you're, you're pulling out your Bible every day and you're saying, God, reveal yourself to me, that you're taking time every day to seek, seek God. Are these people having a devotional life? Sounds like it. And delight to know my ways. I hope that you search the Scripture saying, what is God like? What is He doing? As a nation that did righteousness, they're wanting to do the right thing. They're not wanting to do sin. They're wanting to follow every, everything that God's telling them to do. And did not forsake the ordinance of their God. They ask of me the ordinances of justice. They take delight in approaching God. They love to come to church. They love to come to the temple and worship. They love approaching God. They love their devotions. They are fantastic. Seventh day. Sorry, did I say that? (laughs) These people are doing a lot of good things. Goes on to say. This is what they're saying. Why have we fasted, they say, and you have not seen? Have you wondered that before? You know, God, I'm, I'm fasting, I'm praying. Why aren't you showing up for me? What's going on here? Why have we afflicted our souls? There it is. Why have we humbled our souls and you take no notice? Now, Martin Luther, interestingly, was very good at fasting. This is what he says about fasting himself. I was indeed a pious monk and kept the rules of my order so strictly that I can say, if ever a monk gained heaven through monkery, it should have been I. 
All my monastic brethren who knew me will testify to this. I would have martyred myself to death with fasting, praying, reading, and other good works had I remained a monk much longer. Now, uh, don't get me wrong. This, this chapter does not condemn fasting. It is simply revealing what fasting is all about. But I can tell you from my own personal experience, there's been a time where, where who I pictured God to be was one that it took me groveling enough afflicting myself enough, causing enough physical difficulty in my life that, that maybe then I could come into a closer relationship with it. And it's a pretty amazing thing when you're fasting. There's something that takes place. There's a diet based on it now, right, called keto diet. You get this ketosis feeling, and you begin to feel this, this uh, a feeling that, you know, there was a time period where I fasted and I ate so little that I thought that feeling, I think, was the Holy Spirit in my life. And it's not a pretty picture. I mean, you're looking at me now like, what, is, what would happen if that guy fasted? Well, take 10 more pounds off me. And, and, and at one point, I remember looking up the symptoms of anorexia. I'm like, this is kind of what my body's doing. What am I doing here? It's too much. And I thought that that is what God wanted me to do in order to experience His presence. That's not the picture of what we have with the Day of Atonement. That's not the picture of what a true fast is. Notice what God goes on to say. In fact, in the day of your fast, you find pleasure. You're already finding your gratification in the fast itself. And then He goes on to point in another direction. You exploit all your labors. You take the day off. You don't work on that day, but... You make sure that your laborers are working hard. Or maybe they're bringing big gifts. We don't know the details here, but maybe they're bringing big gifts to the temple that that they have have made their laborers work extra hard so that they could bring this. And their laborers aren't being treated fairly. And it goes on to say, Indeed, you fast for strife and debate. Friends, if our religion comes down to debating... If that's all that we do in our fellowship with others, if it comes down to arguing the point until I'm right and you're wrong, we're missing the point. We're missing what Jesus is all about. And to strike with the fist of wickedness. You will not fast as you do this day to make your voice heard on high. Notice what he's saying here. You're not making your voice heard on high. Are they trying to make their voice heard on high? They sure are. They're praying. They're fasting. They're, they're doing all of these things. They're bowing their heads. But their voice is not heard on high. Why is that? Is it a fast that I have chosen? A day for a man to, there's our phrase again, afflict his soul. Is it to bow down his head like a bulrush and to spread out sackcloth and ashes? Is it, is it to grovel enough? If I, if I make myself miserable enough, if I, if I go through enough motions, if I do the right things, then will God finally accept me? You know what this makes God out to be when we act this way? It makes God self-serving. That, that our worship, our motions that we go through, that, that the entire purpose of what God wants is for us to find the right motions to go through so that He'll accept us. And that means that God is selfish. But that's not the picture at all. How did Jesus summarize the law and the prophets? Matthew chapter 7 and verse 12, He said, Do unto others as you would have others do unto you, and thus fulfill the law and the prophets. God's entire goal in every bit of worship and every bit of adoring Him is that you would treat your wife, your children, your neighbors, and that poor person and every person around you better than you did before you knew Jesus. Notice how it goes on to say, would you call this a fast and an acceptable day to the Lord? Now this is one of the major passages in Scripture that I know of besides Leviticus that talks about the Day of Atonement, really the only other major excursion on the, the Day of Atonement. Is not this the fast that I have chosen? What is it that God wants? What is it that He desperately wants to take place in my heart when I see who He is? To loose the bonds of wickedness. To undo the heavy burdens. To, to see what's going on in somebody else's life and say, man, you're being mistreated. What can I do to fix that situation? 
to, to take care of the heavy burdens, man. You're, you're being weighed down by the stuff in your life. It's too much for you to handle. I'm here to help you lift that burden. To let the oppressed go free. And that you break every yoke. This is what God is looking for. He's wanting for this planet to stop the chaos and the madness. And for us to love each other again. And that is why we worship Him. That is why we need the temple to be cleansed in our own hearts. You know, Martin Luther, eventually we've looked at his testimony about how he came to see the goodness of God. He came to see the mercy of God. I encourage you to to pick up the book Great Controversy and read about Luther's departure from Rome and how that took place in case you missed when we talked about that. But Martin Luther... Something began to happen. In fact, one day he organized something from a convent in Germany came a wagon. And this wagon was full of 12 herring barrels. That's 12 fish barrels, I understand. And and this, this wagon departed and Martin Luther had organized for this to come from the convent. And as it comes out, it comes to a, a, a special location And they go to those barrels, and can you guess what was inside those barrels? Nuns. Twelve nuns were in fish barrels in the wagon. You see, it was high treason to get nuns out of the monastery, but Martin Luther organized a rescue effort to get the nuns out of the monastery. They had heard his teachings. They wanted to get out of there. They realized that wasn't where they wanted to be, but they couldn't get free. And so he set the oppressed, free. Interestingly enough, he began to look for wives for each of them. And you imagine these ladies who have sworn themselves to celibacy, they suddenly realize, I can get married? (laughs) Give me the gospel. Give me more of this. This is incredible. Well, if you don't have a good marriage, pray to Jesus because the gospel will change that too. Um, But marriage can be an incredible thing. Notice how it goes on. Verse 7, Is it not to share your bread with the hungry? Right? So what does this fast look like? It looks like it's setting the oppressed free, breaking every yoke. And is it not to share your bread, your bread, with the hungry and bring the homeless poor into your house? So I've been reflecting on this, thinking about this. And we went on vacation. We were on vacation for three weeks. And we had a lot of fun. We went just on the local coast here to various places from Santa Cruz to Santa Barbara. And uh, this is a picture actually from Santa Barbara where we went around Santa Barbara downtown. And we actually did this in Santa Cruz downtown, and the girls loved it, partially because there's ice cream stores on those downtown streets. <laughs> they don't normally get that anyway. Uh, but here we are going out. And I don't know if you can see what we are holding, but it's something really simple. It's granola bars with a little sticky note taped to it that says, or stuck to it, says, You are loved. Jeremiah 31.3. And we got to walk down the street together and there's an abundance of individuals who are hungry who gladly take granola bars. And I remember the first one we came to in Santa Cruz. Her name was Glenda. And she was there with her walker. And she obviously was older and she ended up telling us that she had diabetes. And she said, wow. This is just what I needed today. My doctor is scared about me being out here on the streets, having diabetes. I don't know where I'm going to move tonight because I can't stay here again. She said, this is just what I needed today. Something really small. And I'm not trying to make myself or my kids a hero. We did not spend the bulk of the vacation doing this. I think it would be an awesome thing to do that, but I haven't figured out how to get my kids excited about that yet. One day, one day. It's something simple. You can go to the grocery store. You can buy a box of granola bars and have it in your car. Buy some sticky notes. And every person you come to that is homeless, you can give them a granola bar. It's something small. It doesn't change their life, but at least it's a start for somebody. You never know what difference that can make. When you see the naked, to cover him and not to hide yourself from your own flesh. You see the picture here. God wants us to know that we're all connected. Stop debating. Stop having this strife between each other and realize that we are all human beings made of the same flesh 
and we need each other. When you see the naked, take your shoes off. You see that girl that's shivering in the riverbed behind 805? You see what she's going through? Maybe you just need to take your shoes off and give her your shoes, like Adam did. But you know, it's not like these situations are easy. Caitlin's situation wasn't easy. Um, Caitlin remained in the riverbed. She has a, a, had at the time a four-year-old son who was living with, I believe is her mother. And so around Christmas time, the same group went and they brought her some toys and said, take these for your son for Christmas. And she did. But she remained in the riverbed. She kept on living that life. Until one day, she was pushed in a fire. And she had to be helicoptered from Paso Robles to Fresno for care. You know, helping people who are in the thick of it is not easy. It's not simple. I've learned that this past week. Just this past week, uh, my phone started ringing. There was a friend that I had never talked to before. His name was Donald Van Oven. And he said he's come out from New York City to California looking for family in the area. And he said, and I... I'm a Seventh-day Adventist, and I'm glad to come to your area, and let's get together so we can pray together. And I wasn't as quick as I'd like to have been in getting back to him, but eventually he started calling me and telling me, you know what, I'm not getting success here with the shelters, and, and I'm hungry, and I have these dietary restrictions, and, and here I am thinking about what I'm going to share with you today. <laughs> and you know, my biggest treasure is not money. You know that. <laughs> My biggest treasure is time. And I realized something. This guy needed my time this week. And, and I can't come up here and talk to you while I go about my busy way, like a priest passing on the other side of the road, while somebody says he's hungry, while somebody says there's a heat wave going on, while somebody says I need help. It doesn't matter if they have mental issues. It doesn't matter what they're going through. If they need my help, I have to show up. They're my own flesh and blood. They're my family. They're your family. Well, here's Donald. <laughs> he's my friend. Some of you might have seen him here. He was here at early service, actually. It's been a busy week. <laughs> Donald, uh, some of my friends here will, will tell you he, he's got a lot on his heart that he says, Daddy, he calls God his daddy. Daddy tells him to, to tell people and, and to share with people. And I've done my best this week, but I'm not here to tell you that this is easy and that I have the answers for how to solve Donald's problem, how to solve Caitlin's problem, how to solve every problem that if we just did X, Y, and Z, their situation would be fixed. I'm here to tell you what the Bible says is our role in people's lives. And I'm not here to tell you that, that this is natural for me. Because <laughs> I'll tell you, yesterday, I like to block out Fridays for prayerful preparation for Sabbath and, and for the sermon preparation. And so this is a picture actually from the Wellsonas truck stop. I drove him up to the truck stop. That's where he wanted to spend the night on Thursday night. And he's like, I'm out of here. I'm going to San Jose. And I was like, well, I can get you to the truck stop and I'll get you the supplies here that you need and then we'll head you, you know, God bless you, <laughs> take care. I hope San Jose treats you better than we, Pastor Robles apparently treated you or that you, things go better for you. And I thought that was over. I thought, well, this is perfect. I can tell the church <laughs> about what happened with Donald and how I sent him off and so I'm going to go study and pray about this message. And so about 11.30 I get a call. I'm having that indigestion problem again. I, I, I don't quite need an ambulance. And then I missed that call. And about an hour later, I'm getting a call from Twin Cities. And he's at Twin Cities. And he's being discharged. And it's 106 degrees outside. He's sitting outside of the hospital in Templeton. Five minutes from my house. You're going to tell me that I'm going to keep studying and preparing about how we should bring the homeless poor into our own houses? while somebody is sweating it out in Templeton? See what I mean that the biggest blessing comes from studying the Bible for yourself and just saying, okay, God, what are you telling me to do? 
So we had a, a good time yesterday. We were able to go around and get what he needed and get him cool and get him a, a nap and get him showered and get him a safe place to sleep last night. He came to the early service today, and now I think he's on his way to San Jose. But if we hear from him this afternoon, then you'll know where I'm at. So there's things that come into our mind, you know? If someone asks, then I'll help them, right? I mean, have you ever thought that? Well, yeah, if somebody asks, I've got a little bit higher piety than Pastor Zach. (laughs) If somebody calls me up, I would show up for them. What if Jesus acted that way? What did Paul write in Romans 5? While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. <laughs> Jesus said, if, if the shepherd loses one sheep, he leaves the 99 and goes after the one lost sheep. Notice what Welfare Ministry, a book that I'll highlight at the end that I encourage you to, to dive into for yourself. It's been enlightening for me. It says, the fast which God can accept is described, talking about Isaiah 58. It is to deal your bread to the hungry and to bring the poor which are cast out to your house. Wait not for them to come to you. The labor rests not on them to hunt you up and entreat of you a home for themselves. You are to search for them and bring them to your house. You are to draw out your soul after them. I'm not saying this is easy or that I know the exact path. Donald did not end up in my house because my wife and I have not figured out how that's possible and the right thing to do when I know somebody at that level. And I don't encourage you to just take every stranger, but I'm asking you to grapple with Jesus and ask him, how do you want me to love this world? If I have extra, then I'll help. Some of us may sit here and say, well, that's great. There's plenty of people that have tons of extra money. Let them help the poor. Notice what welfare ministry says. I am acquainted with persons who make a high profession. That means they they say a lot of good spiritual things whose hearts are so encased in self-love and selfishness goes on to say, to make a sacrifice, to do others good, to disadvantage themselves, to advantage others is out of the question with them. This is the type of fast that Isaiah 58 is talking about, right? It's saying, sacrifice something of my own in order that somebody else can have. I'm not going to eat today because I can save that $5, that $10, that $30 in order that somebody else who wouldn't be able to eat today could eat. Sometimes that sounds like a totally foreign concept. Well, I'll help if I have extra in my bank account, but do you really mean I need to cut down and sacrifice a little? They have not the least idea that God requires this of them. But Isaiah 58 has made it pretty clear to us. You know, it's fascinating. I mean, I've read this my whole life, and yet, you know, you think, well, the Seventh-day Sabbath is so clear in the Bible and it's so clear here in Isaiah 58. And sometimes we wonder, well, well, why can't people get it? And then I read this, take the homeless poor into your house. And I say, why haven't I gotten it? (laughs) What am I missing? It seems so clear. How about this? If I know they are, what's that word? Have you heard of the worthy poor? If I only know that they, that they deserve my help, then I will help them. What if Jesus treated us this way? If you deserve it, then he would come to your rescue. And all of us would have perished a long time ago. Notice what Welfare Ministry, page 40 says, Precious weeks, months, and years pass into eternity, but they have no record of heaven, uh, in heaven of kindly acts, of sacrificing for others' good, of feeding the hungry, clothing the naked, or taking in the stranger. This entertaining stranger at a venture is not agreeable. What's the word venture mean? It's a risky thing, right? You're you're venturing something. You don't know what the return is going to be. You're taking off your shoes for somebody that keeps living in the riverbed. If they knew that all who sought to share their bounty were worthy, 
then they might be induced to do something in this direction, but didn't they deserve to get there? Didn't they bring themselves to this situation? And didn't I get myself into sin? And doesn't Jesus step down to where I'm at in order to rescue me and pull me up? You see, I've got to know how gracious God is in order to be gracious to other human beings. But there is virtue in venturing something. Perchance we may entertain angels. You know, one night... I was driving with Donald. I think this was Wednesday night. I don't know. It's a blur. We were driving north to Tascadero to find him a place to be for the night. And I'm thinking, okay, don't fail to entertain strangers, for in so doing, some have entertained angels, Hebrews says. Maybe this guy's an angel. Like, well, I don't know. Maybe he's not an angel. Right at that time, he's just, he's talking. And all of a sudden, he starts talking to me about how his great-grandmother had this name that meant angel. And, and then that his mom didn't know that, so he told her about angels. And did you know how important angels were? And I'm like, okay, God. <laughs> all right. <laughs> we'll give him a place to stay for the night. I don't know what I'm doing here. I'm not here to tell you I have the answers. But I know that God has given us clear instructions in his word. How about this? This is too difficult. Hang on. My life is already too much to handle. You're telling me to handle somebody else's problems? How about this? I'm afraid my family will be deprived. I'm afraid if, if, if I do this, then it's going to sacrifice for my own family. Notice what Welfare Ministry says. If you engage in this work of mercy and love, will the work prove too hard for you? Will you fail and be crushed under the burden and your family be detrived, deprived of your assistance and influence? Oh no, God has carefully removed all doubts upon this question by a pledge to you on condition of your obedience. This promise covers all that the most exacting, the most hesitating could crave. And we'll see that promise in just a second in Isaiah chapter 58. But know this, that God does not make it too difficult. He will provide. He can multiply the food for 5,000. And he does not require you to sacrifice your own family. It may feel like there's some challenges and some pools there. We have to set boundaries. Of course we do. But ultimately, he's promised to pour out a blessing on us when we look out for the needs and wants of people all around us. Not just the poor, but the wealthy. They all have needs that we can show sympathy for them and come close to them. Is it not to share your bread with the hungry and bring the homeless poor into your house. When you see the naked, to cover him and not to hide yourself from your own flesh. Notice how in the judgment, Jesus in Matthew 25, he doesn't say, did you believe the right things? Instead, he says, you can come to my right hand because when I was naked, when I was hungry, You were there for me. As you did it to the least of these, you did it for me. You see, all of our orthodoxy, that means right belief, has to lead to orthopraxy. That is right action. Believing in Jesus changes us to do something different. Notice the promise. Then shall your light break forth like the dawn. Have you been feeling a little gloomy lately? It's easy to feel that way in this world. And your healing shall spring up speedily. Have you been dealing with illness, been dealing with, with, with struggles physically in your life. The promise is mental health. The promise is power to witness. That light shining in the darkness, Isaiah 60, reveals that that is our power to witness. And health are all promised here, but it keeps going. Your righteousness shall go before you. Who is our righteousness? Christ is our righteousness. This, this picture is a closeness to Jesus. You want a closer a relationship with Jesus? Welfare ministry brings us out. If you want a closer relationship with Jesus, minister to the poor around you. The glory of the Lord shall be your rear guard. Closeness to Jesus. Protection. Then you shall call. You want to know the secret to answered prayer? You want to know how to find power in prayer? Notice how it's given us this outline to minister to the the homeless, to set the oppressed free. And then it says, and then you shall call and the Lord will answer. You shall cry and he will say, here I am. And why is this? Suddenly our prayers are no longer about me and my possessions and my property and my house and my car. Suddenly I'm thinking, Lord, help Caitlin. She's in the riverbed. She's, She's gotten taken to the hospital in Fresno. She needs your help. And suddenly God says, I'll show up for that. 
protection. We saw answers to prayer. And it keeps going. If you take away the yoke from your midst, the pointing of the finger. Reminder, every time I point my finger, there's three pointing back. The Jews had a problem. Humanity has a problem where we like to debate. We like to criticize. We like to say why everybody else is the problem. And every time I do that, there are three fingers pointing back at me. The pointing of the finger and spreading, uh, speaking wickedness. If you extend your soul to the hungry and satisfy the afflicted soul, then your light shall dawn in the darkness. Your gloom is going to be gone and the darkness shall be as noonday. Then the Lord will guide you continually and satisfy your soul in drought and strengthen your bones. Here we have guidance promised, satisfaction promised. You shall be like a watered garden and like a spring of water whose waters do not fail. We'll always have enough. Then it goes on to say, those from among you shall build the old waste places. You shall raise up the foundations of many generations and you shall be called the repairer of the breach, the restorer of the streets to dwell in. What is this talking about? The rebuilding the foundations, restoring the breach. We understand this as a a message that Seventh-day Adventists need to give to the world of restoring the picture of what God's character is like what his love is like, what his law of love is all about. Notice how welfare ministry unpacks this, though. It says, the work specified in these words, Isaiah 58, is the work God requires his people to do. It is a work of God's own appointment with the work of advocating the commandments of God and repairing the breach that has been made in the law of God. We are to mingle compassion for suffering humanity. Mix the two together. Share with the world about God's law of love. Make sure that this is understood. And while you're doing that, mingle compassion for suffering humanity. As a people, we must take hold of this work. Love revealed for suffering humanity gives significance and power to the truth. I don't know who in your life you may have been trying for a long time saying, you know what? I've been telling them about this truth. I've been trying to bring them to the Bible. I'm trying to tell them about Jesus. I've been trying to help them see the light. Maybe they need to see more compassion, more sympathy for what they're going through. Restore and rebuild the foundations. Repair the breach in God's law of love. Notice how it goes on. The the final conclusion is if you turn away your foot from the Sabbath, this is now talking about the seventh-day Sabbath, from doing your pleasure on my holy day and call the Sabbath a delight. Notice how Jesus did that. He did it by ministering to the needs of the person with the withered hand, the woman who had the hunchback, the man who's blind. He did it again and again on the Sabbath. Then you shall delight yourself in the Lord, and I will cause you to ride on the high hills of the earth. Love revealed for suffering humanity gives significance and power to the truth. Now check this out. I I didn't realize until I was doing my Bible reading that Jesus actually ties in all of what we're talking about in one simple verse in Luke chapter 11. Here, he's gone to a Pharisee's house and he sits down and he doesn't wash like they wash. And they're like, hey, Jesus, why didn't you wash your hands properly ceremonially in order to make yourself ceremonial clean? You didn't go through the right motions. What are you doing here, Jesus? And Jesus says, you wash the outside of the cup. You make yourself look good on the outside. It looks good to everybody around you. But notice what he says in verse 41. But now, as for what is inside you, you want to change the inside? You want to know what that looks like? Be generous to the poor, and everything will be clean for you. If, if you open yourself up in generosity for the people in need everywhere around you, the inside will be transformed by the Holy Spirit. This is the direction that God wants to lead us in. He wants to cleanse the sanctuary of our own hearts. Then the sanctuary shall be cleansed. This is a message for God's people living on the verge of Jesus' soon return. Welfare Ministry, page 16, says, When men do not relieve the poor and the oppressed. Remember what the Day of Atonement was all about. It was about vindicating the character of God. Notice the flip side of Isaiah 58. When we neglect to minister to the needs of others. Notice what it does. It does exactly what Satan has done from the beginning of the great controversy. When men 
do not relieve the poor and the oppressed. God is dishonored. His character is misrepresented by Satan. And he is represented as a stern judge who causes suffering to come upon the creatures he has made. If we look at them and say, well, there's always going to be poor. Actually, the, Levitical, uh, the Mosaic law actually said, if you follow these things and set people free, there will be no poverty among you. If we treat people like that's just where they are, that's where they're going to be, and we don't help them, we misrepresent God as if he were a stern judge who causes suffering to come upon the creatures he has made. This mis- misrepresentation of God's character is made to appear as truth, and thus, the, the, and thus through the temptation of the enemy, men's hearts are hardened against God. The, the good news is there's a flip side to this. When we minister to the poor, they see God's character, right? When we minister to the poor, and when we minister to the suffering, not just the poor, but those around us begin to say, oh, the truth makes a difference. Knowing God's character makes all the difference in the world. Satan charges upon God the very evil he himself has caused men to commit by withholding their means from the suffering. He attributes to God his own characteristics. Time and time again, we've seen that this is what the great controversy is all about. One day, in New York City, Laura was walking down the street, and she walked past an 11-year-old panhandler. You may have done this before. You may have seen somebody on the street who needed help. But I wanted you to hear, in her own words... What took place that day? My name is Laura Schroff, and on September 1st, 1986, I walked by an 11-year-old homeless panhandler on the corner of 56th Street and Broadway in Manhattan. At first, I kept walking, but then something made me turn around. I came back to the child named Maurice, and I took him to lunch. We met every Monday for more than four years, and 25 years later, we're still great friends. An invisible thread is the story of how we changed each other's lives. That morning for me, I woke up and I was supposed to go to the U.S. Open. I was working at USA Today at the time. And I woke up and it was pouring rain, and I waited for a couple of hours. And as I was walking down the street, I crossed the street and I saw this young boy in burgundy sweats with his hand out, and he said to me, excuse me, lady, he said, I'm hungry, do you have any spare change? And I really wasn't thinking at the moment, and I walked away, started to cross over Broadway, and realized what he said, and I came back. And I said to him, listen, I said, I don't want to give you any spare change. I said, if you're hungry, I said, I'll take you to McDonald's. We went to McDonald's and then went around the park, um, went over to Hagen Dash down the block, Today is our 25th anniversary, September 1st, 1986, on the corner right across the street. My father, the, the most majority of stories I can tell or remember of my father, I remember a bully, a thug, a gangster, and a drug addict. And I met Laura at a time in my life when, when I was so impressionable, I could have went either way. The people would say to me, God, Maurice was so lucky to have found you. And I used to say all the time, you don't understand. Whatever I've given to Maurice, he's given me back tenfold. Do you hear that? <laughs> That's the blessing of giving. Whatever I've given to Maurice, he's given back to me tenfold. In fact, Welfare Ministry goes on to, to make this bold claim based on the promises of Isaiah 58 that even if we're deceived in giving to the wrong person, in the end... When just one person comes to know Jesus, we'll be rewarded a thousand times over for our generosity to those in need. A thousand times. She said ten times. This says a thousand times. But, you know, their relationship, you notice what took place. She didn't just hand him a granola bar like I did. <laughs> she did something more. What does she do? She took him to lunch. Took him to haagen That takes investment of time. That takes caring about that person. It's not just, I did my good deed for the day, but who is this person? What do they need? And 25 years later, you see the difference that it made. And one story in in this book, I haven't actually read it, The Invisible Thread, but one story that I read about, uh, he is out on the streets, and so she comes to him and says, look, 
I want you to have the money you need for lunch. Do you want me just to give you all the lunch money at the beginning of the week? You just got to be careful with it. Use it well so you have lunch money all week long. Or, you know, I can make lunches for you every day. And his response was, I don't need your money, but would you put the lunches in a brown paper bag? She said, a a brown paper bag. You want me to make you lunches in a brown paper bag? And this is what he went on to say. Because when I see kids come to school with their lunch in a paper bag, that means someone cares about them. Miss Laura, can I please have my lunch in a paper bag? Can I know that somebody in the world cares about me? There's people all around us, rich and poor. Everyone around us needs to know that somebody in the world cares and will be there for them. And there is a reward, a rich reward. Martin Luther rescued those 12 nuns, and as he brought them out, he found spouses for 11 of them. Somebody said, you need to marry one of them. He said, no, I'm not going to get married. That's not what I'm going to do. Well, finally, he broke down. (laughs) And Martin Luther himself got married. And you read about the end of their lives together and how they extolled each other and the difference that each other had made. And outside of the gospel, he basically said that this woman made more of an impact on his life. He rescued her from oppression. And look at what God led him to in experiencing the heights that God wanted to delight him with. And then there's the story of Caitlin. Caitlin, who Adam gave his shoes to, who was given toys for her four-year-old son, but who stayed in the riverbed, who was pushed into a fire and taken to a hospital in Fresno, who seemed to just be stuck in this world of addiction. Adam Robles uh, began to work at, uh, or works at Senior Sanchez in, uh, in Paso Robles. And one day he was working and he loves to interact with people. And as he was going around interacting with people, all of a sudden, this mom, her daughter, and a four-year-old child walked into the restaurant. <laughs> and she said, Adam? And she pointed at him and she said, that's the guy that gave me his shoes. She no longer lives in our riverbed in Paso Robles. She's been set free because somebody said, me walking barefoot is more important than her walking barefoot. I'm willing to sacrifice some of mine for her. And this is just one story of many that uh, our friends at Hope and Faith can tell you of people's lives that are being transformed. So I want to challenge you with a few things before we go. Uh, My wife is helpful in saying, you know, you make us feel like we need to do something, then you don't give us any options. So here's some options for you as we close. Number one, every one of us can do this, and that is simply to pray. Welfare Ministry, page 83. These are things to pray for. Pray that God will give you a heart of flesh, a heart that can feel the sorrows of others, that can be touched with human will. I can pray for my heart to be softened. Pray that he will give you a heart that will not permit you to turn a deaf ear to the widow or the fatherless. Pray that you may have bowels of mercy. That's an old word for moved with compassion for the poor, the infirmed, that's the sick, and the oppressed. Pray that you may love justice, hate robbery, and make no difference in the bestowal of your favors except to consider the cases of the needy and the unfortunate. Then, the promises recorded in Isaiah 58 will be fulfilled to you. You want to pray that prayer? <laughs> pray, God, give me a heart. Give me a heart for those in need around you. I want to pray this prayer a whole lot more. Read this book, Welfare Ministry. I've been listening to it. If you uh, go to this website, you can point your phone at that and go to the website. You can listen to it or read it online. I've been listening to it because time is a premium, but I'm, I'm probably over halfway through it, and it is packed full of gems, of practical guidance for, for what do we do? How do we help people? What are the practical steps that we can take? So I encourage you to check out the book, Welfare Ministry. It's been a blessing to me. There's a whole chapter on Isaiah 58. Uh, there's a chapter on Christ's sympathy for the poor. Text serve. We've talked about this a number of times. If you text serve to 805-434-1710, that's our church phone number, you'll get just opportunities. These are not obligations. They're opportunities to help. And just this week, um, there was another one that came up that I didn't text to this yet, but 
There's people that need yard work or their, their potential of losing their homes right here in Templeton. Um, but there's people within our own church family that need help. We'll get to that in a second. There's another opportunity. That's hope and faith outreach. I've begun doing this, uh, personal outreach that I do on Thursday mornings. This was the group that showed up last week. You may recognize a couple of faces there. And um, We went at 8 a.m., met at JCPenney's, and we went down to the riverbed with burritos and other helpful things for the homeless. You can come any Thursday at 8 a.m., come out with us. Every Saturday, they meet at 7.45 in Paso Robles. You want to know where to meet them? I'll tell you. And here's the awesome thing. You go at 7.45, you can go for an hour and be here in time for Sabbath school, and you're keeping the Sabbath like Jesus did. You could go for two hours, and honestly, don't tell the Sabbath school teachers, the Sabbath school is awesome, but you just might experience a blessing there that is so powerful that you're going to come to church at 11 o'clock, set on on fire, Go and worship Jesus the way that Jesus lived. All right, here's another opportunity for you. This is Jonathan Bonilla's son, Roland. Some of you knew Jonathan Bonilla. Some of you know Mike Bonilla and his granddaughter Elizabeth. I mean, his, sorry, daughter Elizabeth, who attends our school. Well, short, long story short, uh, Roland has autism and it, it, it makes his hearing so sensitive that thunder and lightning and storms are terrifying for him. He lives on the coast of Oregon, and they need our help. And so I sent out an email. If you'd like more information, they're trying to put a soundproof roof on their home so that he has the opportunity to take the headphones off for a second and to be able to learn to have communication skills. And he really needs our help. That's, that's another opportunity. I'm just laying these out here as possibilities, ways that you could help people in need. This week I went to visit Karen Coleman. They're going through it. They are under oppression. Not, maybe that's the wrong word for it. They're under a weight, a heavy burden, I should say. That's a better way to word it. They're under a heavy burden. And they're probably going to lose their house soon. And they need our help with it to fix it up, to maybe be able to sell it, to help them clean it out. Um, if you're interested in that, please let me know. I know some of you have mentioned that before, that you'd like to have a work be at their house. Maybe that's something we can organize. I, unfortunately, am very limited in my mechanical skills, so I need you <laughs> to help me in helping those of our own church family who are in need. And this can be an awesome witness to some of her daughters who... They're not so sure about Christianity. They're not so sure about God. I'm not talking about karma in particular, but you never know the difference, the power that this could bring to the truth that we long for people to understand. Here's another one. On the other side of the world, there are 15 million blind people who live in India. And you can help. There's an incredible story about an Adventist physician, another physician even, who, who came up with a cataract surgery that can take place for... Very cheap. I've heard between $25 and $75. But for $75, you donate to It Is Written. They have this project called Eyes for India. Every $75 that you donate, a person in a poor province in India, where they know poverty that's far beyond anything we've ever come in contact with. Well, you've probably been to India. If you've been to India, you know what it's like. They can see, which means their life is open and they can work, they can do things, can change their life forever. Right? So just some ideas. Pray for sympathy and opportunities. Here's another one I didn't mention. Memorize Isaiah 58. Maybe it'll internalize for us. I've, I've done a little bit of this, but I want to internalize it more. Read Welfare Ministry. Join Hope and Faith Outreach. Thursdays, 8 a.m. Sabbath, 745. Help Jonathan Bonilla's son Roland. Help Karen Coleman and family. Donate to Eyes for India. These are just some ideas, but start with what's closest to you. Start with those in need right around you. Pray for sympathy and pray for opportunities. Ask God to open your heart the way that His heart is open for you. Again, throughout Scripture, reveal yourself as the God of the fatherless, the God of the orphan, the God of the poor. And thank you that when we were poor, Christ for our sakes made Himself poor that we through His poverty might become rich. Oh God, We're asking that you would move our hearts with sympathy and compassion. And Father, for those whose hearts already have sympathy and compassion and just don't know what to do, Father, we're asking for direction and guidance. This isn't an easy thing. We don't have the answers. 
but we know that you're calling us to make a difference in this hurting world. Father, we're praying the prayer that Jesus taught us to taught. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. God, we want to make a difference on this earth. There are hurting people around us. Father, please don't let us turn a blind eye. Please open up our hearts. Show us how we can make a difference. And thank you that you have promised light in the darkness. You've promised healing. You've promised us delight in you, closeness to you, protection from you. You've promised us so many incredible things. Father, help us not to be afraid to open our hearts, but to trust you and to give and to give and to give because that is what you've done for us. In the name of Jesus, I pray. Amen.